Welcome, my friends, to this edition of the History of Christianity Season 2. We're on Part 10 today. We're going to be looking at the Reformation in Scotland. We do have a couple of things to finish up from last week as far as England goes that will relate to Scotland. So we'll do that first, and then we'll move into looking at events surrounding the Reformation movement in Scotland. But first, we need to finish things up in England. So we do that by looking at Mary Tudor. When Edward VI died, this was the son of Henry VIII, the one male son that he had legitimately, who Henry VIII had done away with the wives that he did in order to get. When he finally died, which he did young, the crown went to his half-sister Mary. She was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. So that was Henry VIII's first wife who was very strongly Catholic. So Mary had always been a Catholic. She was raised that way. And one big reason for that is, in her experience, the Reformation movement had begun with her own dishonor being declared an illegitimate child. You'll remember that really the Reformation movement in England, as far as the official movement that started with the king, it came about as a result of Henry wanting to get out of this marriage with Catherine of Aragon. And the way that he went about doing that was to declare the marriage was illegitimate to start with. And so it wasn't even really that they were getting divorced. It was just, it didn't count. When you do that, that means the child that came as a result of that marriage is now an illegitimate child. So Mary had grown up with the thought in mind that Protestants were the reason for her having to go through that and having to be dishonored and having to have some people call her illegitimate and everything else that went with that. So even though she's going to eventually ascend to the throne, it doesn't change the fact that she has a very bad taste in her mouth as it comes to Protestantism. And anyway, even if that wasn't the case, she was raised a Catholic and she intended to stay a Catholic. Also, if Henry was right in declaring himself head of the church, Mary's right to secession could be cast into doubt. So even though Henry had developed this secession plan that was to start with Edward, but then if something happened to Edward, it would go to his daughters in order of their birth, it could still be con contested on the basis of saying, well, Mary wasn't really in the line of secession anyway because she was illegitimate. So she really didn't have any way of, of going with the Protestant path, but even if she had wanted to, because it just wasn't going to work out very well for her. So there are definitely reasons of conviction. She was, she was a staunch Catholic, but it was also political reasons too. Mary was committed to restoring Roman Catholicism in England. So both from her own convictions, but also as happened so much with these rulers, it was a matter of politics as well. Mary had the support of Charles V. Remember, he's the emperor in Europe and a number of conservative bishops who had been deposed during the previous two reigns. So there are some guys in England who they weren't in their post anymore, but they were still hanging around. And they obviously were going to be on Mary's side with restoring the Catholic Church to England. So she had some people in high places that supported her for sure. Yet she knew she must move with caution. She spent the first months of her reign consolidating her position in England. So she didn't just come in right away and change everything and revert the Church of England back to the Catholic Church. She eased on in. She made sure she was in a good stand. But then as soon as she did know that, she started in on these new policies. As soon as she felt secure in her position, Mary began a series of repressive measures against Protestants. In late 1554, England officially returned to obedience to the Pope. The feast days of the saints were restored. 
married clergy were ordered to set their wives aside, and open persecution of Protestant leaders became the policy of England. So Mary takes some very strong measures here. She's not messing around. She's not trying to create a middle ground where everybody can get along. She is moving them back to Roman Catholicism. England is going to go with what the Pope says. We're bringing back all of the Catholic traditions that were lost. Clergy, sorry that you got married when you were allowed to do that under the Church of England, but you're Catholic again, so you got to ditch your wives. And then we're also going to persecute these Protestant leaders. So this is a pretty strong turn, and she did make that turn. Almost 300 Protestant leaders were burned while countless others were imprisoned or sent into exile. So Mary got a reputation as a result of this. she That's a lot of people that were killed. And the ones who weren't killed, maybe they died in prison. They were in prison. They were sent into exile. She really came out strong. And because of this, she got her name, the name that you probably know her by, the, or at least the nickname you know of her, and that was Bloody Mary. So over a small period of time that she reigned, she did kill a lot of people. And it had to do with this turn from the Church of England, Protestant Church, back to the Roman Catholic Church. In 1563, Protestant suffering was highlighted in John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some of you may have read this. Fox's Book of Martyrs has a lot of stories through the years of Christian martyrs. There are definitely ones that came even from the early church days, but because these events were going on at the time, Fox didn't include quite as many of the of the stories of the old days as he expected to. He was seeing persecution actually happening in his day. So when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll find those stories, but you're going to find a lot that were going on during the actual lifetime of, of Fox and were happening there in England. So if you if you ever have looked at that book, you might not have noticed that. If you never have looked at it, I would definitely recommend you do because it has some amazing stories of courage and real faithfulness in light of the fact that people were going to lose their lives. And I, I would encourage you to try to try to get that and look at some of those stories. It's pretty amazing what some of the forerunners in our faith had to go through in order to make sure that our faith was passed on. And they did. And you can read about that in the Book of Martyrs. The most notable martyr during Mary's reign was Cranmer. He was kind of the, the top religious guy in the nation. He was the king's direct confidant. He, he was the one who gave him advice when it came to religious matters. And he had been named the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he was a guy that Mary was definitely going to go after. And she went after him so strong that he actually did sign a recantation before his death. A lot of times with these recantations, if if you're offered the recantation, you're that you get to do that to spare your life. But he wasn't offered that. He was going to die either way. But he was given the chance to recant, and he did it in writing. But then that wasn't enough. They they took Cranmer up and they set him up to recant publicly. But when he went forward to recant publicly he withdrew his recantation and instead he said no that recantation that i wrote was wrong and he made a strong stand for his faith at that moment and this made him a hero among protestants and it strengthened their resolve against mary mary died in late 1558 and that sent the crown to her half-sister elizabeth so we'll look at elizabeth now elizabeth was the daughter of henry the eighth and anne boleyn so she would have done the opposite of Mary. She was going to be the one whose legitimacy is tied to Protestantism. 
Elizabeth was a Protestant, both out of conviction and political necessity, just like her half-sister. She was definitely of the opinion that Protestantism was correct. That's the way she'd been raised, but she was the exact same situation as Mary. If the Catholic Church is correct, then the marriage that Henry had with Catherine was legitimate, and so the marriage that Henry had with Anne Boleyn would have been illegitimate, and that would have made Elizabeth Ill illegitimate. So it's the exact same situation. She had the conviction for Protestantism, but also out of political necessity, she had to be Protestant whether she really had the conviction or not. So both things are in play here. During her reign, exiled Protestants returned, bringing Calvinist and Zwinglian ideas back with them. So one of the things that these exiles did is it allowed these British Protestants who had only ever heard the Protestantism that was taking place in the Church of England, which remember, it wasn't quite as strong. Henry didn't really care about Protestant ideas. He, in fact, he would have rather stayed with the Catholic Church, but out of his own political necessity, he didn't. And he moved to the Protestant Church, but he wasn't going to go along with the strong Protestant teaching. Now, some of that was happening in England. But some of these Protestants had never really heard that, never really read writings about it or been taught. So they went out and they, all of a sudden they get the strong Protestant ideas from Calvin, from Zwingli, and they bring them back with them. So what Mary thought was actually helping is, is going to turn out to undo what she, her efforts were because even more Protestantism is coming back into the country as these people return. Elizabeth was not a Protestant extremist. She was like her dad. She didn't really care about the theology being just perfect. She favored a church whose practices were uniform. They wanted everything to be done the same way, but in which would be great latitude for varying opinions. So she didn't really want to get into taking a stand on some of these ideas that had already fractured Protestantism. We talked about some of those a few weeks ago. But she wasn't going to take a stand. She didn't want the Church of England to take a stand. She wanted everybody that came in to kind of t have more of a moderate view that we can agree to disagree or, you know, there's good ideas with both sides. So it was a very moderate way of thinking, and it was a way of trying to keep unity and not allow a lot of these issues to get in and fracture the church in England. Moderate forms of Protestantism were acceptable, but Catholicism and extreme Protestantism were not. So it wasn't only Catholics, but if you were too extreme as a Protestant and took one side to absolutely be divisive against anybody else, you weren't welcomed either. You were out too. So you had to kind of toe the line and kind of had more of a middle ground approach and you were good. This policy could be seen in a new edition of the Book of Common Prayer. In it, the two different formulas for communion were combined. So remember, the first Book of Common Prayer had a formula for communion. It particularly when it comes to the blessing of the bread, that was kind of, it, it could go along with the, the Catholic idea. It could go along with Luther's idea of consubstantiation, but it could also be okay with Zwingli's idea of things just being symbolic. But it, you could interpret it both ways. The second Book of Common Prayer was much stronger for Zwingli. It was very evident that it was to be interpreted as just symbolic, purely symbolic. There is no body of Christ involved. It's just he's he's saying this is like my body. This is like my blood. Remember what I did for you. So it's all symbolic. 
Well, this third edition under Elizabeth wants to try to bring these two ideas together. So I want to read to you what the, the next one was. I, I quoted the other two last week, but let me quote this third one. So this is the third edition of the Book of Common Prayer. And this is the formulas that the ministers were to use in the distribution of the bread. So here's what they said, quote, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in the heart by faith with thanksgiving. So this was a, a middle ground approach. They went back to kind of being able to interpret with both things. And they you have both ideas there. So definitely moved away from a strong approach of going along with Zwingli but yet didn't alienate what Zwingli had to say. So again, Elizabeth wants to move more towards the middle. She doesn't want an extreme side on any of these issues. The same policy can be seen in the 39 articles, which were released in 1562, and they were released in order to serve as the doctrinal foundation for the Church of England. In them, several Catholic doctrines and practices are rejected, but there is no attempt to choose among the various Protestant views. So under Elizabeth, the Catholicism is going to be attacked. If you get divisive as a Protestant, you're not going to have, be welcome. But she's not taking it. She doesn't want church leadership or anything that is official from the church to take a strong stance in the divisive things that Protestants are dealing with. Communion is the, the biggest one. We talked about that. But there are other ones too. And so she just wants, she wants unity. She doesn't want to see her church fracture like the Protestant church already had. There were already all these groups and they couldn't agree on things. And Elizabeth was determined that that would not happen. But Catholicism certainly didn't go away during Elizabeth's reign, although it was very much hampered. During Elizabeth's reign, Catholicism continued a precarious existence in England. The Pope declared Catholics free from any obligation of obedience to Elizabeth. So they were kind of free to not do what she said religiously and even to the extent of, acting, of actively being against her. Therefore, some Catholics took up the cause of Mary Stuart, the Queen of Scotland. We'll get to her soon. Were Elizabeth to be declared illegitimate, the throne would go to Mary. So if there could be a case made in which everyone would agree, you know what? That first marriage that King Henry had was the legitimate one. The Elizabeth shouldn't even be in the line of secession. The next person in line after Elizabeth was, was Mary Stuart. So they could just go right on over to Scotland and bring her on in and let her take over. And she, as we're going to find out, was very much on the Catholic side. So this was them just trying to look after themselves. They didn't really care who the ruler was other than that ruler would help them. So they were going to take that side up, and that was kind of their big hope as Catholics of, of retaking control, was let's get Elizabeth out and get Mary Stuart in. Mary became the focal point of several conspiracies by Catholics, and what I mean by that is that they were plotting to try to get rid of Elizabeth, and most of those plots had to do with killing her. So Mary, and the whole reason for it was to get Mary in. So that's going to, that's going to kind of put some bad blood between Elizabeth and Mary right off the bat, although, as you'll find out, Elizabeth really didn't act on it until later on when she was forced to. Graduates of Catholic seminaries in exile returned to England and risked their lives in taking sacraments to faithful Catholics. So kind of the reverse of what had happened with the Protestants who were in England under Mary 
and were being killed. You know, me and Mary Tudor here, not obviously not Mary Stewart. But these Catholics now, they're on the other side of this. Now they're having to sneak in, but they're going to continue to practice their faith. They're not going to stop, and they risk their lives to do it. And that obviously means that there are people that are going to be killed under Elizabeth that are Catholics. Infiltrated priests and Catholics who conspired against the queen were captured and put to death. In all fairness, if you're actively trying to get rid of the queen and kill her, then you kind of, you kind of deserve to die if you get caught. And that's what happened. And even priests that maybe they weren't on the side of trying to kill Elizabeth, that they were definitely on the side of, let's sneak in, we'll act as priests in the Protestant church, but really we'll keep on practicing Catholicism. They were, they were out of there too. There was abundant proof of conspiracies against the queen's life. So these aren't just conspiracy theories in the sense that we think of them today that are way out there and there's no proof of them. These actually were true. Now, maybe not every single detail, not maybe not every single one, but there was plenty of proof that there were people conspiring to try to kill Elizabeth. It was not just being talked about. There were plans in motion to try to do it. So this is a serious thing, and it's kind of that deal. If you're going to take a shot at the king or the queen, you better not miss. And they didn't really ever get them close to getting her, but a bunch of them died as a result of it. Finally, Elizabeth ordered that her cousin Mary be put to death to kind of put a stop to all this. So if there's no Mary, then it's not going to do the Catholics any good to get rid of Elizabeth because they don't have Mary to step in. So she had to do it. We'll, we'll see more about that later and exactly how Elizabeth went about dealing with that. Toward the end of Elizabeth's life, Catholics were indicating that they were ready to distinguish between their religious obedience to the Pope and their civil loyalty to the Queen. On this basis, they were allowed to practice their religion openly once again. So eventually the Catholics were accepted back into England and allowed to practice their Catholicism as long as they understood that in doing so, they couldn't be actively against the government. They could obey the Pope, but not when it came to their citizenship. They were to be loyal citizens of England. If they could do that and, and as, as such be under the authority of the queen, then they got the right to practice the religion that they wanted to practice. And so eventually they came to understand that that was the best way to do things, and they did. Also, toward the end of Elizabeth's reign, the Puritans began to grow in number. We'll talk a whole lot more about them later, but this is the time that the Puritans come about. Now, why did they become known as Puritans? Well, the reason is that they became known for their Calvinist ideas of restoring the pure practices and doctrines of the New Testament. So their idea was the same as what Calvin said. Let's try to get it back as close as we can to what originally happened in the New Testament. Let's do everything we can, the way we do church, the way we do leadership, the way we preach, the theology, the doctrine, the government, everything. As close as we can get it to the New Testament. That's the purest form of Christianity. So let's move now and look at the Reformation in Scotland. Traditionally, Scotland had sought the support of France against England. We talked about that last week again. Scotland and England were the two big powers there in what is now Great Britain, but Scotland and England didn't get along. And because they didn't get along, each of them took their allies from the pool of countries that didn't like the other one. So automatically, that was going to make Scotland want to be on the side of France because France hates England. So Scotland had sought the support of France, but things kind of changed there for a minute. In the 16th century, there were those who believed that it was in the nation's best interest to establish closer ties with England. It's actually a good idea. It didn't last, though. 
To that end, James IV of Scotland married Margaret Tudor, a daughter of Henry VII. Obviously, that's King Henry VIII's dad. So this would have been Henry's sister. When Henry VIII became king, there was hope that the two countries could finally live in peace. So the idea here is, it's kind of the way things were done at that time, marry off somebody from your family to the ruler's child of another country that you've had problems with, and that ought to, those family ties, maybe that'll make there be some peace. Now, it often didn't work out that way, and you can see here it's not going to work out that way this time either. Then Henry VIII offered the hand of his daughter Mary, this Mary Tudor, to James V. So this was the son of James and Margaret. But at that time, Scotland had changed again. They flip-flopped back to wanting to be in their alliance with France, so James wasn't going to marry her. He married the French Mary of Guise. And so from that time forth, the two countries took different courses in relation to the Reformation and in relations with the papacy. Now, that doesn't mean King Henry VIII's not going to try to finagle his way back in with Scotland. He's going to do that again. You'll see here soon, but none of it works. None of his stuff works. They're, Scotland's moved on, and they're not going to try to be friends with England at this point, and it, they don't really have anything come close to that again for a while. While these events were taking place, Protestantism was gaining followers in Scotland, so it was kind of starting to move that grassroots effort. It had even taken place in England before Henry VIII brought it in. It's going on in Scotland, too. Those who held to the doctrines of the Lollards and the Hussites became eager followers. You'll remember them from the first season. We talked about them as one of the groups that were forerunners of the Protestant Reformation. They kind of got in right before the big Protestant Reformation hit, but they kind of laid some groundwork too. And so you've got some folks in Scotland that already know and believe that the Catholic Church needs to be reformed. And, and they were, had followed the doctrines of these guys that wanted that Reformation to happen first. So when they hear the Protestant come, Protestants come in with their ideas of Reformation, they're all for it. They're already ready. They, the groundwork's been laid for them. You don't have to sell them on it. They're on board. So that, as Protestantism comes into Scotland, it finds that there are already people there ready to take it on. Scots who had studied in Germany also took home the ideas of Luther and the other reformers. So you've got a lot of these people that are going into Europe, into Germany, eventually into Switzerland, and they're going to bring back these Reformation ideas. The Scottish Parliament issued laws against writings by the Reformers and against those spreading Protestant teachings. So the Scottish Parliament was not down with all this Protestantism. They're staunchly Catholic still. And so in 1528, Patrick Hamilton was martyred. This was the first martyr in Scotland, the first Protestant martyr, and he actually was commemorated. His initials are on the street in St. Andrews. We're going to see St. Andrews is going to be a pivotal point for Protestants. You'll see that in a moment. But if you go there to this day, the spot where he was martyred, they took bricks and or stones and they spelled out his initials there to remember him. And But he wasn't the only martyr. After that, ever-increasing numbers were executed. Yet Protestantism continued to spread, especially among the nobility and among university students. You know, it's so funny. We've talked about this before, but the lessons of history just never seem to get learned. It doesn't matter if you study it or not. Somehow, people don't think the same things that have happened before are going to happen to them. And if you read in the history of Christianity, anytime there's heavy persecution against a Christian group, it flourishes. It's just the way it works. The best thing to do is just ignore it. 
if you if you don't want to give it fuel don't go out against it and certainly don't start killing people because you're just it's going to be like a wildfire then and that's what happened the persecution rose and the leadership thought as all the leadership before them had thought that it was going to stamp it out but as all the leadership before them found out and they found out it just made it worse if you're looking at it from that point it just made it grow that much faster and it happened this way again in scotland that brings us to the probably the most important reformer in scotland at this time and that's john knox when james v died in 1542 Henry VIII tried to have his infant daughter, Mary Stuart, heir to the throne, married to his son, Edward. So here's Henry VIII trying to get on in again. Edward's the, his son, and if he can get little Mary promised to marry his son, then they can maybe bring everything back together again. Well, the Catholics in Scotland are not too crazy about that idea, and so they actively resisted this, and eventually they put a stop to Henry's plan that didn't go through. At that time, John Knox entered the scene. Born in or about 1515, little is known about the early life of this reformer who would become the leader of Scottish Protestantism. So don't know a whole lot about his early life, but we pick up with his education. Knox studied theology and was ordained a priest before 1540. He became a tutor to the sons of two noblemen who were Protestants. He was also influenced by a guy named George Wishart. He was a famous Protestant preacher who died for his faith. So Knox, he gets under the influence of some strong Protestant leaders, and he starts changing his ideas about things. Knox was ordered by the noblemen to deliver their sons to them at the castle of St. Andrew. This was where that martyrdom had happened in St. Andrew's there. And it became kind of a rallying place. They had the Protestants had stormed that castle and taken over, and so they were holed up there. And these noblemen were part of that group. They wanted their sons to come. So Knox came, but his plan was, I'm going to drop these kids off and I'm getting out of here. He was going to head on out to Germany. That's a good place for a Protestant person to be or somebody who's going to learn more, learn more about it. But as we've seen again in history, against his own will, he was made the preacher of the Protestant community at St. Andrews. So here he goes, goes into the castle thinking I'm dropping the kids off and I'm running out of here. And nope, that ain't the way it's going. You're going to become the preacher here. Well, I don't want to be. Well, it's too bad you are. So, so Knox becomes the leader there at that community, which is the pivotal point for Protestants in Scotland. And therefore, eventually, he became the main spokesman for the cause of Reformation in Scotland. Against his will, as so many other of these church leaders through the years we've read about, but Knox becomes that guy. Eventually, the government, with aid from France, sent an army to St. Andrews. So the Scottish government were not going to go along with this rebellion. They stormed the castle and forced the Protestants to surrender. Knox and several others were condemned to cruel labor. Now, that's bad, but at least they didn't kill them. Most of these stories end with these guys being killed. They didn't die. But they were condemned to cruel labor, which ain't all that great. But he, he spent 19 months there, and then England intervened, and they freed him. So some English troops came over and they got him out of there. They got Knox out of there. When Edward died, so Edward over in England, and Mary Tudor took the throne of England, persecution began again. Remember, Mary's the Catholic one over there in England. So she's not going to be helping Protestants in Scotland. And so the Scottish government doesn't have any opposition other than the people already there. So they go right back to persecuting heavily. 
So at this time, Knox went to Switzerland where he was able to spend some time with Calvin, and he also went to Zurich. Now, Zwingli was already dead, but Zwingli's successor, Bullinger, was there. So he spent time with those two guys, two big leaders of the reform movement. These were the main two guys. Obviously, Zwingli was first. His death left open the leadership role. Bullinger took that place, but then Calvin eventually becomes the overall leader of that reform movement. And Knox got to spend time with both of them. So he gets a big dose of Reformation theology. And eventually, of course, you know, he goes back to Scotland with that. Let's look at what happens with Mary Stuart. Meanwhile, Mary Stuart was sent to France. Her mother remained in Scotland as regent. So her mother kind of ran things in her place when she was young. They sent her to France and nobody would get her. And she'd be protected there because she is she's going to be the Catholic ruler and the Protestants don't like her. So she goes there to be educated. While she's there in April of 1558, Mary wed the heir to the French throne. And he eventually, when he took over, became crowned Francis II. And that happened slightly more than a year after their marriage. So here's Mary. She's in France. And all of a sudden, she's queen of France. And that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good job. This made Mary both queen consort of France and titular queen of Scotland. Uh, she's got she's got the throne in France and she's heir, she's kind of got somebody watching out for the throne for her in Scotland. So she could at any point in time go back over there and take over. So she's in pretty good shape. This is a powerful person. You got two major countries and both of them hate England. So <laughs> she is going to stay Catholic for sure. But you'd think, well, if you're queen of France, that's pretty good. There are a lot of people that like to be queen of France. But not only that, let's throw in Scotland, too. Wow, that's, that's a big deal. That's surely that's enough for anybody. You can't even rule both places. But that wasn't enough. That's not what she really wanted. She didn't necessarily want Scotland, for sure. She liked France, but she always felt that she should be the legitimate queen of England. She believed that, that Elizabeth was not legitimate, and it wasn't fair that she should rule. Mary should be the one to rule. She should take over. So she never lost that idea. She always persisted in it. And unfortunately, it's going to lose her everything eventually. Protestants remaining in Scotland continued to be persecuted. They united and established ties with Protestants in England. So they got some support from England again. Eventually, they established a church and wrote to Knox asking him to come back to Scotland. So the Protestants start to kind of regain some 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 power they start to kind of come together again they're not real strong but they're they're working their way back and the guy they know they need is knox they need to get him back in there so in not in exile knox had written a book titled the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women that title alone can tell you this is not going to go well for knox the book was intended to strike against the catholic women ruling in england and scotland and france so he targets these women because they're very strong leaders in these countries. They're outright, outright ruling or they're ruling in place of somebody, but they are in very powerful positions and they're all Catholic. And so Knox attacks them as the leaders, but he decides to make the focal point of his attack the fact that they are women. And that is a very, that's a very bad move on his part. And it's very poorly timed because right about that time, not long after that book is published, Elizabeth ascended to the throne in England. So here she is taking on the throne in England as this book about the monstrous regiment of women ruling everywhere comes out. 
though the book was not aimed at her, and it was obvious that obvious it wasn't her specifically, Elizabeth still resented it for its arguments based on anti-feminine prejudice. So Knox based a lot of his reasons for why they shouldn't be supported, not on religious beliefs or political grounds, but just because of the fact that they were women. He, he used that. Well, that was a terrible mistake on his parts. Because Elizabeth is reading that book and she's thinking, all right, uh, he's mentioning he's mentioning Mary and he's mentioning these other women, but he could just as easily be saying this about me because he's making the he's making the claim not based on what they did or didn't do or even religious grounds. He's making it based just on the fact that they are female and I'm a female too, so she don't like it. And that hindered the alliance that should have developed between Elizabeth and Knox. She never really forgave him for it. He attempted several retractions. He tried to straighten things out. And Elizabeth wasn't having it. She wasn't one to be trifled with. She didn't like it. And he never did quite do enough to appease her. So they had problems. And it's unfortunate because he would have got a whole lot more help from her if he hadn't written that stupid book. But he did. Things were not going well for the Protestants in Scotland at this point. The Catholic army, which included a lot of French troops, sought to crush the Protestant rebellion. And they almost did it too. But early in 1560, Elizabeth finally re relented some of her problems she had with Scotland because of Knox and she sent aid in the form of English troops. So now you've got French troops and English troops. Not a good combination. Anytime there's French troops and English troops, there's usually a war. And that's what they were thinking was going to happen. They thought the, there's about to be a long war and we don't know how it's going to go play out. But before that could happen, the regent died. So the regent in charge there, Mary's mother, she died. And as a result of that, there's kind of a power vacuum. And so the French decide, well, we don't know how things are going to shake out. Let's leave. And the English decide, well, French are gone. We can leave too. So they leave and it, the war doesn't happen, but it, it did get close to happening. Not long after, Mary Stuart was invited back to Scotland to claim her throne. There's a little bit of background here. Knox and these noblemen, these lords that had been on his side, once the Protestants started kind of gaining some momentum, and especially when they started to accumulate some, some financial stakes, these lords, these noblemen wanted that, they wanted a piece of the action. They wanted some money. Well, Knox and the leaders of the church wanted to use the money to establish a system of education among the people to educate them, number one, but also to pass on the Protestant ideas. They realized that the way to get to the people is to educate the children. And, but these noblemen, didn't, they didn't care anything about that. They wanted their cut. So they were kind of at odds right now, and as a way of getting back at Knox and kind of just thumbing their nose at the Reformation movement, they go along and, and invite and try to get Mary Stewart to come back to Scotland. So just a lot of nonsense that happens once again as a result of politics being involved in the church. Now, Mary wasn't necessarily all that excited about coming back. She would have, she would have been fine with just staying in France. Her, her first idea would have been, let me go to England and rule there. But if that can't happen, then I'll, I'll take France. France is pretty good. But her husband died, so she couldn't be queen anymore. The secession was going to take place, and somebody else was going to come in. She wasn't the blood relative, so she didn't get to stay as queen. So that wasn't an option. She's, she's lost the French throne. And so her only option, she couldn't get England. She had to go back to Scotland. So she goes back in 1561, and at first, everything was okay. Mary listened to the advice of her half-brother, who was a Protestant leader. We'll hear more about him in a minute. And that prevented her from immediately alienating the Protestant Lord. So she comes in and kind of is really wise. She's getting really good counsel about how to get along with the Protestant leadership there. 
She doesn't have to run rough shot over them right away. She can get along with them and, and her reign will be a smooth one. And so she gets good advice, but of course it doesn't last. Things are eventually gonna come to a head. Growing tension between Knox and Mary made a clash seem inevitable. Yet Knox and his followers were still able to organize the Reformed Church of Scotland. So Protestantism is gaining even more ground at this time because Mary has taken the advice of her half-brother and not pushed to, to really pull down Protestantism. She's just kind of letting it be. She's not on its side and there's definitely tension there. It's kind of one of those things where you're just waiting for the waiting for the moment when she's going to jump out and, and make a move. But it hasn't happened. So Knox and his followers were able to gain ground and they developed this Reformed Church of Scotland. In each church, elders were elected, as was a minister. The pillars of the new church were the Book of Discipline, the Book of Common Order, and the Scots Confession. So they, they're setting up and organizing their church. In the end, Mary Stewart caused her own downfall. She begins to make a series of really bad decisions and she makes them based on one thing. She always dreamed of ruling England. And so she took measures to strengthen her claim to the throne. And one of the big ones she did was she married her cousin, Henry Stewart, who had a distant claim to it. So she's trying to get more people to say, you know what? Now that Mary's married to Henry, both of them, really, if you look at it, they have, a, they have a claim to the throne of England. Surely they ought to be the ones in charge. She's thinking that's going to happen. Now, there's no way it's going to happen. Elizabeth's not going to be one that's going to let that happen. We know that. But Mary just couldn't get it out of her head. She just couldn't be content with being the Queen of Scotland to be in charge. She needed England. She thought it was rightfully hers, and she wasn't going to settle for anything less, and eventually that took her down. James Stewart, this was the Mary's half-brother we talked about earlier, he was a Protestant leader and he objected to her marriage and her agreement with Spain to root out Protestantism in Scotland. So she had made an agreement with Spain, James found out about it, that she was going to start persecuting Protestantism in Scotland and, and create some measures to make it hard on them. So he rebelled against this. He's a Protestant leader, he's not going to go along with it, and he eventually, he doesn't win and he ends up having to go to London. Having lost his counsel, so she lost James' counsel, who's trying to kind of keep her in good standing with the Protestants, Mary now, so there's nothing to stop her from enacting policies which were increasingly unwise. She had Lord Bothwell, so she got this guy named Lord Bothwell and her confidant, and she has him murder her husband. She decides she didn't need to be married to this guy anymore. And so she decided, well, I'll just take Bothwell in his place, and so Bothwell gets rid of the guy. And this was not good. The Scottish lords hated Bothwell. They didn't like him at all. It was kind of, it was, she never admitted that she had this done. She would deny it, but everybody knew she did. And so the Scottish lords rebelled against her. When the queen attempted to stop the rebellion, her own troops refused. So now she's in big time trouble. When the army doesn't follow your commands as a ruler, you're dead meat. And she was dead meat. Now she was at the hands of the lords, and they just both basically told her, you can be killed or you can abdicate the throne. So she abdicated the throne, and her half-brother James, who had been sent out, he, now he comes back, and he's going to be the regent. He's going to be in charge until the next person in the line of succession is ready to come in. Mary escaped, so she went, she abdicated, but she was imprisoned, or at least she was confined, but she got away and she gathered an army in support of her cause. So she's 
Yeah, she abdicated, but she didn't do it willingly. And she decided she's going to try to retake her throne. Well, it didn't, didn't work. She was quickly defeated. And then she didn't have any other choice. She couldn't stay in Scotland anymore, so where does she go? She has to go to England. And, oh, no, she's got to seek refuge under her cousin Elizabeth. Now, she hates Elizabeth. But, interestingly, Elizabeth didn't hate her. She received her with great courtesy. She treated her really well. She had to stay in the castle. She wasn't allowed to just roam around, but... She had, Elizabeth had everybody in the castle. She told them to treat her like she was a queen. She had 30 servants that she was able to pick to be her, the, the people to help take care of her. She was treated really well. Well, it did not matter to Mary one bit about this. She continued to participate in conspiracies to kill Elizabeth and take the throne. She was determined to get the throne of England. And even when Elizabeth treated her better than anybody else probably would have under the same circumstances, she still persisted in it. And that's going to finally take her down. And the third time there was one of these conspiracies discovered, there was definitive proof that Mary was a willing participant. Some would have said she flat out planned it. There wasn't enough strong proof for that, although she may have. But it was no doubt that she knew about it and she was on board with it. So at that point, Elizabeth really didn't have a choice. I mean, you can't just be the queen and keep on letting somebody live under your roof that's trying to kill you. So Mary was tried and condemned to death. Historically, you look back on these events, there are some that are very hard on Elizabeth and say she treated her very, very poorly, and that's really not true. If you look at the facts, anybody would have done the same thing. In fact, most people probably would have never even let it get to that point. You're going to take in the person that's actively been trying to get rid of you and bring her into your home and have people treat her well? Most people wouldn't do that. Elizabeth did it. She tried to make it work, but it didn't. And Mary ended up dying. She couldn't stand not having the throne, and as a result of that, she died. Knox continued his Protestant Reformation work in Scotland until he suffered an attack of paralysis. That took him out from being able to preach. But there was a big martyrdom that happened to many Protestants in France, and when he heard about it, he was compelled to return to the pulpit for a final time. And he, he did that to urge his fellow Scots to continue their struggle and to keep on fighting because if they didn't, then he was worried that what happened to France was going to happen there in Scotland. So he comes back, he delivers his message, and then just a few days later, later he died. But at the time of his death, it was becoming apparent to everyone that Scotland had been won by the Reformed tradition. So the Reformation in England and the Reformation in Scotland happened in very different ways. And yet now you've got them both. They are Protestant now. They have, have left Catholicism behind. And they're going to, even though they took different paths to get there, they're on board with the Protestantism. So that's all we have time for today. Next week, we'll look at some developments that are going on at, in the Lutheran church at this time, the, the big first branch of the Protestant Reformation. So we'll look at some things there, and then we'll continue on through our study of church history. Thanks for spending time with me once again today, and God bless.